There's a story told of an old preacher who was asked by a young man, he said, when uh, will I cease to be bothered by the sins of the flesh? The uh, preacher looked back at him and he said, son, I wouldn't trust myself until I'd been dead for three or four days. <laughs> um, you know, in many Christian circles, our attention is directed towards sinful acts instead of the temptation that precedes the sinful act. Uh, temptation, we are reminded, is not a sin, but in fact, Jesus himself was tempted and resisted. We know that he was our high priest, Hebrews tells us, and like at all points was was uh, tempted like as we are, and uh, and yet was without sin. But uh, you notice that we, we choose to focus uh, instead on the sinful activities instead of that which causes um, which which is temptation. Uh, but the problem is the focus does not does us great harm. See, uh, yes, Jesus was tempted. No temptation is not a, a sin. But dismissing temptation as uh, unimportant is simply naive, to put it simply. See, temptation is uh, where we begin to defeat sin. Every person's tempted, not just on an occasional basis, but repeatedly every day. I, uh, I wouldn't want us to write the book right now. Uh, it might get a little embarrassing, but if I were to say, okay, everybody raise your hand, it was tempted today, I don't want you to do that right now. Because you know what? In all reality, if we're all honest, all our hands go up today. We go somewhere, somehow, some way. Uh, everybody's tempted, and not just an occasional basis, but repeatedly, day after day after day, uh, many times a day. And temptations jump into our pathways. They enter our minds. They, they flit across the vision of our thinking, and they, they brush over our hands with untiring repetition. It's amazing. Temptation uh, just continues to come, and it uh, doesn't ever stop. Doesn't ever stop, and uh, but that's not all. Temptations are often uh, custom designed, custom timed by the by the evil one. That's why when Jesus taught us how to pray, he said, "Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." He said, "Very simple. Teach me, help me to find that way. Lead me not into temptation, deliver me." And the actual translation of that is, "Let us not fall into the traps of the enemy, but deliver us from his schemes." He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. He is seeking to, to whom he may devour. And the enemy is well aware of your weaknesses, and he's well aware of my weaknesses. He's well aware of where we are and what we're going through. He's well aware of, of the, the, the battles in which we're facing, and he contemplates the perfect time to strike. He plots the times when we're most vulnerable. It, uh, we're told... William, Major William Martin, a British uh, subject who is uh, buried near uh, Hulville, Hulville, I said that wrong, on the coast of uh, southern coast of Spain. Martin never knew the, the uh, great contribution that he made to the Allied success in the Second World War, especially in Sicily because he died of pneumonia in the foggy dampness of England before he ever saw the battlefront, never made it there. He, uh, the Allies had invaded, the North, uh, invaded North Africa. The next logical step was Sicily. Knowing the Germans calculated this, the Allies determined to outfox them. And one dark night, an Allied submarine came to the surface just off the coast of Spain and put Martin's body out to sea in a rubber raft with an oar. In his pocket were secret documents indicating the Allied forces would strike 
where they would strike next in Greece and Sardinia, and Major Martin's body washed ashore. The Axis intelligent operatives soon found him, thinking he had crashed at sea. They passed the documents on to, to other hands all the way to Hitler's headquarters, and so while Allied forces moved toward Sicily, thousands and thousands of German troops moved on to Greece and Sardinia, where the battle was not. Isn't that amazing? <coughs> Satan works with more cunning than even the Allied plan, getting us to fight many temptations in places where the real battle isn't. Getting us to fight where things really isn't. Often temptations hurt us more where we are least expect them. He is a specialist in our spiritual ruin. That's why Peter warned Christians about Satan using those sobering words there in uh, chapter 5 and verses 8 and 9 when he said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil has a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accompanied or accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. <coughs> Notice he tells us to resist, and as a lion stalks its prey, studies its victim, analyzes every single, uh, every angle, abiding its time for the perfect moment to pounce. You think about, I... Uh, we have a cat. If you haven't been around to see our cat, then uh, he, uh, he does not do like our last cat did. Our last cat used to sit up here on the front porch of the church, and you got greeted when you came and left. Buddy's not that friendly. Buddy is not that friendly, not even close. But Buddy is a hunter. That is something we can tell you about Buddy. Buddy is a hunter. and It's so funny to watch him. He'll step off the porch and and all of a sudden, you'll watch him, he'll go, poof, and he crouches down. I shake my head because there is no animal that's smaller than him that is safe in our yard. I just go, this, this cat's crazy. And, uh, and he brings you his treasure. He brings you his treasure. He doesn't just leave it, you know, to leave you alone. He brings his treasure. And he likes to bring it to the folks that don't like his treasure the most. Those folks that don't like. So all the girls, you know, I, I, I need another boy. I can't wait for Aiden to be around. Because I need another boy to be able to take care of Buddy's treasures that he's bringing back to us. But I got thinking about that, and I said, you know, when it comes to the way the devil works, the devil works very similar. That cat is amazing to watch him step off the porch, and all of a sudden he gets into hunt mode, and he's ready to go. And it doesn't matter whether it's in the tree, on the ground, it just doesn't matter. He's ready to go. He's ready to, to move forward as it is. You watch him go out in the backyard, and all of a sudden, you know, next time you go, oh, I don't want to know what was out there because we might meet it. Now, if it's bigger than him, it's free to go. He leaves it alone most of the time. Unless it's a dog. Dogs don't have any business in our yard. He's made that very clear. You look and you go, you know, the devil is the same way. The devil is there, and he'd like to report back, I got one. I got one. I'd let, he wants to bring a trophy. I got one. I stole him. I got him. I got him. I snuck up on him. I dealt with him. I did it. I defeated him. I beat him up. I did all of that. Look and we go, why? Because the devil's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Seeking who he can destroy. See, there is no moment in our life 
that is is not uh, uh, that is is not a possibility that he's knocking on the door. Temptation is unavoidable. You see, we need to understand the pathway to sin. See, the first step then is to recognize the uh, seemingly harmless choices that ultimately lead into darkness. <coughs> Those choices that begin. See, falling into sin isn't usually a bold decision to forsake the righteous life and in an exchange for a sinful one. Instead, it takes the form of unwise choices that lead us to a series of even more foolish choices. There's a progressive nature to the process of becoming sinful. What begins as seemingly innocent matter can lead us right into the pit. How can we be wise at, every, at the very beginning and make choices that will protect our lives? In other words, how do we avoid the slippery slope of sin? Because it's just that. When, when we get sliding on the slippery slope, whoo, down it goes. And then I ask, who doesn't like? Who doesn't like the slide? You go, oh, you know, because sin's always fun for a season. It's always comfortable. It's always there. And so we have to understand the pathway. <coughs> we have to under, understand the pathway. There is no greater case that exists in the Bible for the downward slide that temptation brings than the fall of King David. We look and you go, King David, oh, man. If he would only, if he would only. One of the greatest lovers of God who ever lived, 2 Samuel 11, verses 2 and 4, paints for us a picture of the slippery, slippery slide. Tells us that he got up from bed, he rose up uh, uh, in the palace, and he, not only that he's there, but uh, what, did he, what happened? He saw someone on the roof. They were bathing. You go, oh, no. The, uh, he, uh, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't that Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David's messengers uh, get to her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. These verses show us a pathway to sin. It's, it's defined in four steps. We look, in the early stages of temptation, sin is never repulsive. It's On the contrary, it's very attractive. It's something that we look and you go, it's alluring. No wonder temptation often begins with, with the temptation to simply look its way, to gaze in that direction. Because of temptation's allurement, if we're not careful, we won't avert our glance. We won't look away. We won't, uh, we won't get uh, uh, dodge the bullet or we start uh, letting its image to soak into our minds and into our hearts through the window of our eyes. And we allow its vision to wrap itself around our weakness and our sinful desire. To look temptation's way is not simply to glance in its direction, but it's the kind of looking that's required is, is the kind of looking that stimulates an appetite. That's what happened to David one night. See, the scripture says, One evening David got up from his bed, he walked to the roof of his palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Looking stirs up the appetite with us, a, a mental fantasy, a desire to have. And when we do this, we have turned our eyes toward temptation. We turn them toward temptation. We look, and then we explore. David sent somebody out to find her. Find her. Find her. Well, I know who that is. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the, the wife of uh, Uriah the Hittite? After we've uh, turned temptation's way and to, to make a lingering look, the next phase is exploration. And this is the stage in which we, we first make rationalizations. We justify our anticipated behavior. We haven't actually done anything. 
We just we just justify it. We're just working things through our mind and uh, and working out uh, a simple curiosity. This is where the time when God comes to us and in the midst of our temptation and and what is it that we're told in First Corinthians chapter ten and verse number thirteen? There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common unto man. But with every temptation, he'll give us a way of escape. You look and you go, there's that, that way of escape. <coughs> temptation is <coughs> inevitable, but giving in to every single satanic intrigue because we feel that we're hopeless or helpless is, uh, to, to resist is not. We're commanded by God to stand up to temptation. We are, uh, we're promised that God will meet our efforts at resistance with the supernatural support not only did the scripture say that David sent someone out to find her and the man said isn't this Bathsheba the daughter of Lion the wife of Uriah the Hittite the servant came back to David with information and he delivered it he said he said very simple this is a married woman here was David's perfect chance for him to to come to his sentence senses he could interrupt his slide in temptation's clutch and grasp. The servant had, had, had lit up the exit sign. Get out! The warning sound had been given, but he already rationalized in his mind, I deserve this, no one will ever know. He'd already greased the slope. And we look, we explore. Third, we seek. You see, we cannot stop temptation at the first phase by looking away and and, and, and we, we can, now let me back up, we can stop temptation at the first phase by looking away, by redirecting our thinking. If we fall and fail in that area, we can end up by refusing to devote any uh, mental energy to considering it. But if we fail to stop at those two phases, the third step is, is taken. We go in search of the sin, placing ourselves within its close proximity. We have a way. Notice we, we haven't actually yet committed the act, but the necessary arrangements have been made. We made it simple. Look at what David did. David sent messengers to go get her. He sought Bathsheba out, even sending someone to go get her. He deliberately put himself in a position where the actual sin could take place. See, his mind could have been racing with rationalizations, I, I only want to get to know her better. Or There's nothing wrong with just saying hello. Or I'm not going to actually do anything. How foolish and ensnared we are as we start to get in this phase. We rationalize. We are the fish that's already swallowed the bait, but haven't yet realized there's a hook in it. But there, there it is. That leads to that fourth step. We look, we explore, we, we seek, and fourth, we act. The scriptures say she came to him. She, he slept with her. You've looked, explored, rationalized, arranged, toyed with the idea. You set a, a plan, but unless you cut it off right now, the next and final will soon follow. You act on the temptation. When you act on the temptation, and then it's sin. Each one, when they're tempted... When they're tempted, he's dragged away. We're enticed. We're, we're, uh, uh, we explore. You say, Pastor, that sounds like a Bible verse. Well, if, if you go through, you might go back to, to James chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15. 
Because that's just it. Everyone is tempted. And when you're tempted of your own lust, that lust is conceived. It bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. See, we could define it this way. We could go, well, when, when we look, when we're dragged away, when we're paying attention, and when we're enticed, we explore. And after the desire is conceived, we seek, and, and it gives birth to sin. We act, and sin, when it's full grown, it brings us to death. That's the simple breakdown of that verse. And we ought not to be surprised when, when we sin, for all along we were being drawn closer and closer to the flame. Monkey trappers. Everybody likes animals around here. Monkey trappers are neat folks. And in and, uh, and Af- North Africa, they have a clever method of catching their prey. A number of gourds are filled with nuts and firmly fastened to a branch of the tree. And each has a hole large enough for the unwary monkey to stick uh, his forepaw into it. And when the hungry animal discovers this, he quickly grabs a whole handful of nuts. When he grabs that whole handful of nuts, the hole is too small for him to withdraw his clenched fist and he doesn't have enough sense to open up his hand and let go. He won't let go. He just keeps hanging on so he's easily taken captive. And you realize that's the picture of a lot of Christians when it comes to sin in our life. The devil with his crafty devices tries to ensnare us and, and he appeals to the appetites of the flesh and, and uh, which can lead to, to the spiritual downfall. And as long as they, they hold on to that worldly bait, they, they can't escape from the trap that Satan set. He keeps on urging, don't let go. Enjoy the pleasure of your sin just a little longer. Just a little longer. We look, we explore, we seek, we act. We eventually suffer the consequences for the wages of sin. We all know Romans 6.23 is death. The consequences are always the same. Every time we sin, we take another dose of death. Well, Samuel, (coughs) chapter 12, verses 7 through 14, reminds us that what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to David that the Lord that the sword would never depart from his house because you despised me you took Uriah to be uh, uh, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own and out of your own household I'm going to bring a calamity upon you before your very eyes I'm going to take uh, your wives and I'm going to give them to to one who is close to you and and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight you did it in secret but I'll do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel wow David and David said to Nathan I've sinned against the Lord see the Lord's taken away your sin you're you're not looking you're not going to die physically David but because by doing this you've made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt the son you born born to you will die so how do we stop are we just a victim to death and are we unable to do anything else well we already mentioned first corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 no temptation is taking you but such is common to man and god is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above that which you're able but with that temptation he'll provide a way of escape a way to run a way to flee see the tools to resist james says submit yourselves to god resist the devil and he will flee from you James chapter 4 
And you look and you say, there he is. The key to resisting temptation is that we first have to refuse to give it a foothold. <coughs> we, have, we have to resist its effort to place us under its spell at the very earliest of its introductions. We've got to say, nuh-uh, nuh-uh. J. Allen Peterson writes, all alone temptation is utterly powerless. To succeed, temptation always needs a partner, someone to agree with it, to dance with it, to open the door for it, and to welcome it in. I went, ooh, that's good. See, it is a startling to think that Satan can actually come into the heart of man in such close touch with Jesus as, as Judas was. And more, he's, he is cunningly trying to, to, to do today with you and I. And yet, he can only get in the door as far as we are willing to open the door. See, we control the door of our life. Satan cannot get in without our help. Once I've become a child of God, once you become a child of God, once you ask Jesus to come into your heart, he took up ownership. Lordship of your life and lordship of my life says that he's in control. This morning we talked about resolutions to set, and the resolution to set is to say, I'm under the Lord's management. I'm not under my own management anymore. It's his management. It doesn't matter the direction that everybody else thinks. I'm under God's management, and when he leads, I'm following, and there we go. Let's go, because he and I are always a majority when it's he and I. We look and we go, there's the, the, uh, the test, and he tells us the, the, the startling picture but we allow ourselves to descend the staircase of temptation, giving in at each success level. And we find ourselves increasingly desensitized. We get in so close. Some of us are old enough, we remember computers coming around and there was a simple statement. Our kids, they don't hardly remember that. You put garbage in, you get garbage out. All of us older folks go, yeah, I remember that phrase. And our kids go, huh? There's an app for that. Don't you know that? Kind of the way they think. But you know what? The reality is, is very simple, though. What is it that we put in our lives? What is it that we're allowing to, to come in? We, we grow numb to the significance and the consequences of our choices. The more we follow temptation's lead, the more callous we become. Thomas Kempis writes, he said, that, and this gradually... Uh, uh, the, the malignant foe enters fully. Since he was not resisted at first, and the, no longer one, uh, and the longer one is careless about resisting, so much the weaker is he every day, and the foe is more powerful against him. See, every day that we let the devil come in a little bit farther, every day we let the wall down a little farther, the devil gets a little stronger. He says, oh, I got him. See, if temptation is strong and it's deceptive, how can we resist it? As children of God, let me give us four ways to resist it. First, we've got to depend on the Word of God as truth. For example, we have Jesus. How did Jesus defeat? All, all three times. How did he deal with temptation when it came his way? As it is written. As it is written. As it is written. Now, it sure would be nice. I'm going to say this. I would love to have the resources that Jesus had in his mind when it came to the Word of God. I would have loved that. You know what? To be able to look at those folks and, and, uh, and, and just be able to go, boom, here, from the foundation of time, let me give you an answer from God. God said, I would love to have that resource. 
I would love to have that resource. You realize that we really do have that resource? It's the Holy Spirit living within us. You and I have got to study the Word of God. We've got to study the Word of God, and you know what? He'll give it at just the right time. When I don't know what to utter, He'll give it to give to utter, but I've got to be right. I've got to be right. I've got to be ready to listen. I've got to be ready to hear what the Spirit says. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes, let's be honest, if we've let our guard down a little too far, then you know what? We've let things get in a little too close, and we don't necessarily want to hear what the, what the Lord has to say. Because it doesn't really fit where I want to be. Because this shirt looks good. It's real comfortable. Instead of standing up going, no, 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 devil, you got no place being here. And so we sang it a little bit earlier, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Aren't you thankful that I can look and say, there, there it is. And so when we look at scripture and you look and you go, the approach penetrated <coughs> the life and the thoughts of, of the apostle Paul as well. Jesus resisted temptation through the dependence on the word, uh, dependence on the truth and the reality of the word of his father. The approach penetrated the thoughts and the, 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 uh, the life and the thoughts of the Apostle Paul, leaving him to remind young Timothy and 2 Timothy that all scripture is given by God for, for what? He, he walked us through there. He's, it's useful. It's useful why? To teach us, to mold us for doctrine, for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. You look and you go, there he is, fully equipping every one of us to do what God wants us to do. You see, Scripture dispels all rationalization. It removes, removes excuses when we're tempted. It lights the pathway. It corrects the course of action. First of all, to be able to resist temptation, we have to have a deep and penetrating knowledge of God's Word. It must not be held loosely or in disregard. See, the Bible is a mirror into which we look to see what we're doing or what we should be doing. And the first line against sin is knowledge, understanding what's right and wrong, what's true and what's false, what's good and what's evil. God gives us his word at the first, uh, as the first tool of resistance. Depend on God's word as truth. And then secondly, refuse to go along. Refuse to go along. We have to simply refuse to cooperate. We are not powerless against temptation. The devil can't make us do anything. That's why the Bible encourages us. When he says, resist the devil. I was doing some digging and sorting along, and I came across one, uh, one, one commentator. He, he wrote it this way. He said, he said, I think James should have wrote this. He said, I think James should have wrote, yell aloud no at the devil. I liked it. I thought, like, there it is. We use the, this in, in, in drug ads, and we come across it on television screens. You remember years ago, they said, just say no. One of former President Reagan's aides visited a large high school in Bronx, and he spoke for 45 minutes to more than 3,000 young people, urging them to say no to drugs. Some of you go, that was a long time ago. I happen to remember the speech. Uh, it's long enough that I can remember the, the actual when it came out and when it was made public, but here's what happened. At the end of the speech, he said he needed a volunteer. He invited a volunteer to come down out of the stands, and a young man who appeared to be a senior in that high school, and he brought him up front, and now the young man, what would, uh, 
what I'd like for you to do. And he looked at the student and he says, I want you to take off all your clothes in front of these students. No way, the young man said. I'm not going to do that. You've forgotten who I am, the man said. I'm an aide to the President of the United States and I'm very close to him. I could get on the phone right now and have him command you to take all your clothes off. The young man looked back at the President's aide and he said, you can give the President a call. The boy replied, but I'm not going to do that in front of these guys. Nuh-uh, not happening. Well, I understand what you want, the aide said. You want money. He took out his wallet and he handed the student a $20 bill. He said, for this 20, you take off your clothes. No, the boy insisted, and so then he dug out a $100 bill. And he put that $100 bill in that boy's hand, and he said, but I'm not going to do it. Speaker then turned to the auditorium that was packed with, with, with teens that were, and peers, and he said, would you like to see him take off his clothes? The kids began to chant. Yeah, take off your clothes. They can go all day long, the boy said. I'm not going to do it. Then the speaker made his point. He said, I want you to understand what you've just done. You've said no to something stupid. You've said no to power. You've said no to money. You said no to your peers. And if you can say no here, then you can do it out there. Go and say no to drugs. The same principle is true for any temptation that comes your way in life. See, as a determined act of the will, we can say no, depend on God's word as truth, refuse to go along, and then let her see you run. Thirdly, run. Run. When temptation rears its head, my challenge is to simply run. We have to learn how quickly to remove ourselves from the danger zone. Just ask Joseph. Just ask Joseph. Go back to the young Joseph, and as he was perhaps 17, certainly uh, not, uh, not into his 20s, but he's confronted with a major temptation, the <coughs> vulnerable period of his life. In Genesis 39, Joseph, handsome man. He said, come live with me. He refused. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? How can I do such a wicked thing? She spoke day after day, she re and yet he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went in to attend his duties, and nobody of the household servants were inside, and she caught him by his cloak and said, Come on. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. We all need to learn a lesson from Joseph. If that sin's attractive, back off. If it's instrumental in leading us down a pathway that dishonors God, walk away. See, the bottom line, we've got to remove ourselves from the temptations playground. We've got to get away. drunk Dutchman in Amsterdam lost part of his nose 
after rubbing noses with a pit bull terrier. The 43-year-old man was staggering through a crowded Amsterdam market when he saw the dog. He walked toward the animal, bent over, and stuck his nose in the dog's muzzle. The dog reacted immediately, and he took a bite of the man's nose. The unidentified victim was taken to the, a hospital. You look and you go, wait a minute. But that's why the Apostle Paul, when given instructions on battling temptation, he said in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 6, verse number 18, he said, flee. In fact, his directions were so explicit that, that a, a direct translation from the Greek reads more along these lines. Make it your habit to run. This is a call to be constantly on the alert. You can't stand toe-to-toe with temptation, go 15 rounds and win. we got to get, get it over. You must, we have to run away as fast as we can. Depend on God's word, his truth, refuse to go along the way, run away, and seek out accountability. See, posted uh, throughout some dangerous college campuses were signs that said this, don't run alone. The intent's obvious. It's not safe. It's to warn students of the danger of jogging around campus by themselves and that there's safety in numbers. It's no different in our walk with Christ and and the danger of sin. We need to take advantage of the protection that comes when we involve ourselves through personal accountability where we help one another out. Bearings, the oldest bank in Britain. The oldest bank of Britain announced it was seeking bankruptcy protection after losing nearly $1 billion in a stock gamble. According to Time magazine, the chief trader of Bering Singapore office began uh, betting big on Japan's nickel market and then disaster struck, an earthquake hit. Some of you might remember in 1995, that earthquake that did a mess in Japan. And the Nikkei plunged more than 1,000 points, and Bering's bank lost big money. But instead of cutting his losses, Bering's Singapore trader doubled his investment, apparently hoping that the Nikkei would rebound. It didn't. And the London office put up $900 million to support this falling position on the Singapore investment. Finally, Bering's ran out of capital and declared bankruptcy. How could one 28-year-old trader in Singapore lose nearly a billion dollars and run a 233-year-old British bank out of money? He had no accountability. The problem was the lack of supervision. London allowed the Singapore trader to take control of both the trading desk as well as the backroom settlement operation in Singapore, and it's a mix that, that can't be. And in this case, it was toxic. The trader kept his own books, it's like a schoolboy grading their own tests. A trader, you walk through the temptation to cheat, it would be overwhelming and if those stakes was high enough. Some of you might remember Justin Armour was a rookie wide receiver with the Buffalo Bills. Some veteran teammates invited him to a preseason party and Justin went and couldn't believe what he saw. There were women that were hired to be there. They, uh, they were offering sex to anybody who wanted, and it was the most uh, eye-opening experience he said that he'd ever had. He, he said, I had heard about things like this, but I was so naive. I, I got out of there as fast as I could, and, 
as a single Christian guy, Justin had committed to, to, to saving sex for marriage. To do so, he knows, i got to run from temptation. I'd rather not have my mind polluted by those things. Once you've been in a couple of situations there's no where there's, there's temptation, you learn how to avoid them and you don't go back. Justin also calls his best friend an accountability partner. He says, you need someone to hold you accountable for walking with Christ, says Justin. Steve does that for me. He knows everything about my life, good and bad. There's nothing he will, won't hold me accountable for. One well-known Christian leader regularly meets with a group of fellow pastors and challenges them with seven questions. Seven questions that are simple. It says, have you been with a woman anywhere in the past week that might be seen as compromising? Have your financial dealings lacked integrity? Have you exposed yourself to any sexual explicit material? Have you spent adequate time in Bible study and prayer? Have you given priority time to your family, especially your spouse? Have you fulfilled the mandate of your calling? And have you lied? Any of the six questions for you this evening. You see, when we hold ourselves accountable to each other, we strengthen the wall of resistance. Makes us more likely, makes it more unlikely for us to fall into temptation's clutches. Number three, we've got to get back on course. Those times when we do fail to resist temptation. And it's early stages for those places in our life where we've become so calloused and uh, related to sin. And, and uh, it's important that we apply the first biblical principle here that God wants us to handle sin. And that is with confession and with repentance. You've got to come to... See, the more we fall on our knees in confession, the more sensitized we become to our sin in our lives and we see it for what it is let me let me give you an example i'm gonna pick on four kids i see a lot of kids and i see a lot of kids and the first thing they do you did push the button doesn't matter what the button is you did push the button no uh i didn't do that saw you. I didn't do that. I saw you. I watched you do it. No. You know, I believe they convinced themselves in the course of telling you that. They're convincing themselves, I didn't really do that. What do you mean? Yes, you did. I watched you. I saw you do it. Here. How about, what about God? You think God saw you do that? He didn't see me do it because I didn't do it. If I saw you do it, God saw you do it, and you're still saying no, you going to pull that lie to him? Because I'm sure he saw more than I saw. Matter of fact, he even knew the intents of your heart, the scripture says. You know, it's interesting because come back around to that child. And you know what we find? The scripture says very simple. Even a child is known by their ways. See, if we don't get to the place where we confess, and we don't come to the place where we get things right, 
then you know we don't come to the place where that confession see confession does something special for us when we admit that we're a sinner when we admit yes I did wrong when I admit that I sin when I admit that I did wrong it's amazing because then I become more sensitive to that area and amazing how God works in that way I become more sensitive I become more aware I confess that you know what it's even more amazing is is when we ask God to help us we ask him to convict us of the sin in our lives he then begins to open our lives to the sin he also burdens us with the weight and he prompts us to confess it and turn from it the goal of confession and repentance is the goal uh, is 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 the goal of sin sensitivity. It's to have a life and an attitude that's actually aware of sin in its many forms, in its earliest stages, not so that we're neurotic, but that we could feel the early prick of our conscience so that we can begin to add the tools to help us resist. That we can put the things in our lives to say no to that sin. It's amazing, though, how many of us <clears throat> when it comes to sin, <clears throat> Hebrews writes and says that sin that doth so easily beset us, we become so callous that we may come to an altar at one day and go, Lord, forgive me for that sin. And you know, we might mean it for real at that particular moment. But that sin that does so easily beset us, if we don't put those pieces in, protect us from the next time around the next time the tempter comes the next time the burden comes the next time he's looking going hey look at that hey look look follow me come on come on let's chase that one Gordon McDonald tells us this he said many of us assume the first mark of growth in Christian life is to be better behavior the first mark of maturity is actually the ability to identify and admit bad behavior. Say, I did it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, or I'm sorry, chapter 12, verse number 10. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. See, we have to understand the pathway to sin. We look, we explore, we seek, we act. We eventually suffer the consequences. The tools to resist depend on God's word as truth. Refuse to go along, run away, and seek out accountability. That's why the Bible tells us in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse number 40, let us examine our ways, test them, and return to the Lord. Examine our ways. What have I been doing? Examine. read a book here several months ago, three, four, five months ago, for the Chase Kids group. And uh, it, uh, he and I joked about it. It has three chapters, he said. It only has three chapters. It's true. It only has three chapters. It has many sub-chapters, but it had three chapters. And it's just a little book. It starts off saying, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way. It takes a familiar prayer in the Old Testament encourage us to, to search. You know, I shared with him after the fact, I said, you know, Brother Chase, I, I said, that happens to be one of my favorite. And he goes, I knew. 
I know that. I heard you preach a long time. But I said, yeah, that happens to be one of my favorites of David's writings. And uh, I encouraged our kids the other night. I said, uh, you know, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is take your Bible and take a look. Many of our Bibles have little labels there. And it tells you when certain things were written. So it tells you when certain chapters are written. So as you study your Bible, you could actually see the mind and the heart of David as a lot of these things were going on. A lot of folks think that the Psalms were written in order. And by the way, they were not written in one written in day one and two in day two and day three. No, that's not how they were written. Matter of fact, when you get out there in 22, 23, 24, they were written when, when Saul was king of Israel. And David was playing his harp for him. And chapter number three was actually written on down a long ways in his life. So you realize, no, they're not in order. And so if we'd take the time to look and you'd say, oh, man, because the book of Psalms are, are just that. They are, they're actually psalms. They're actually psalms. Now, we don't have the melody to them. We put various melodies to them. We could, why should I cast all my soul to trust in God? We could trust in God. There's one of them. We could sing, search me, oh God, see if there be some wicked way in me. We've done that. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. There's another one. I could go through, and I'd probably name 50 songs that come right out of there. But you know what I found amazing is this, as you walk through, and we look at, at temptation, and we grab hold of it, and we dig into the Word of God, we realize I've got to learn. I've got to sing. I've got to allow God to get ready to speak so that I hear. See, I, I don't know about you, but I can think of times when the Lord has spoke in my heart and I needed to hear, I needed to listen. Some of those times I did. Some of those times I didn't. Miss Heather says some of those times you didn't. I heard the Lord speaking for you. <laughs> and to you. I don't know about you. I, I want to call your, your mind to remembrance and to be able to say, Lord, Lord, I, I've heard you. It's time for me to come back. It's time for me to come home. Because it's really easy to go, yeah, okay, Lord. I need to do that. I don't know if you've been that way. I've heard sermons preached, sat in pew and gone, yeah, I probably need to take care of that today, Lord. Invitation time come and go, yeah, I'll take care of that praying later today. Shame on me. Shame on me for being in such a way to say, God, when the Holy Spirit of God times I remember I remember the first time probably more vivid than I remember any other time I remember the first time I got saved on a Monday night I get excited this time of year because this time of year that I got saved 
I invited the Lord to come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. It was on a, on a Monday night. It was a revival meeting. Brother Jerry Johnson was preaching. I can tell you who was preaching. Brother Jerry Johnson, you look Brother Jerry up. Brother Jerry used to do, he did a series of things on the devil that just scared the daylights out of you. And, uh, but not only that, but he, uh, in the process of preaching that, he talked about drugs and alcohol. I remember I hit the altar that night. I told about the girl that, that uh, the youth director, she told me in school earlier in the day, she said, I'm giving you a ride to church tonight. She lived down the road around the corner from us, or from me. And she said, I'm giving you a ride to church. I was a freshman. She was a senior. She was pretty. And I'm me. <laughs> of course, I'm riding with her to church. She walked me down the aisle, down into church, and walked me right down to the second pew of the church. And I heard that man preach, and I'd swear up and down. He was talking. I was the only person in the building that night. I swore up and down. I don't care. There, there were probably three, four, five hundred people in that room that night, but I was the only person that I believe was being talked to that night. Yeah, I went down. I don't remember the prayer I prayed. I don't remember much more. I remember going down the aisle, and I remember that. But I'll tell you what I remember more. Some of you heard me tell this more times than you know, but you look and you go, wait a minute. But I remember the next day, Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning. See, Tuesday morning, I went into school just like I always did. I was second or third period. I'm not sure which class it was. And I had an English teacher, and she and I did not get along. I really think it's kind of funny, and if she had the chance today, I, uh, I think it would be really kind of humorous now to be able to look back and go, hmm, he stands in front of people and talk. He has no business doing that with his English. Uh, I just, you know, she, I could hear her, no doubt about it. But I remember that specific day because that teacher and I, we had many conflicts. And I chewed her out like I had chewed out her, chewed her out before. <laughs> Sent me out the door. You're on your way to the dean's office. I deserved it. No question about it. I deserved it. Hmm. I'm walking past, and there's a girl that sat right by the door. Because when you go out the door, you go outside, and then you got to walk seven buildings to get to the front of the complex. We had one building swallow your whole school up. We had to walk seven of those buildings. Yeah, they're huge and two-story, and they're huge. Unbelievable. And this girl sitting back there, and you know what? She was in church on Monday night. She sure was. And she saw that I had gone to the aisle, and that they had announced that I had invited Jesus in my heart to be my Lord and Savior. And as I'm walking past her, she's sitting there in her chair, and she said, a Christian wouldn't do that. As I flung the door open, mattered no hornet, I heard her words just as clear as I as could be. Seven buildings, I took my own sweet time because I knew what was going to happen. I went to school in the day when you still got the paddle. So I knew I was going to get the paddle, and I can honestly say this time I knew I was going to get the paddle. There wasn't any question about it, but I got down to the office, and it was kind of funny because Coach Tuttle was one of my coaches, and Mrs. Jenkins was the other dean. I knew them really well. I hate to admit how well I knew them as a freshman. And I remember it was funny because Coach Tuttle looked at me as I come through the door and he shook his head. And I don't know what was different about me necessarily, 
But he, he, he looked at me, and he just points like that and sent me to Mrs. Jenkins. And I thought, oh, God. I have to be honest. I did not like going to that lady's office. I never did. I'd rather go to coaches. You know what? Coach would give me a whooping. And, uh, and he'd give me a whooping, and he'd swing that paddle. He broke that paddle in my presence. It was not on me, thank you. Before y'all think that, uh, it was not on me. It, uh, but it was on my buddy. And uh, it just rescued me from the moment of that paddle. But, you know, I got down there and he goes, I saw something different and I didn't want to deal with you, so I sent you to her. And Miss Jenkins says to me, as I sat down in her office, I'm fully expecting I'm going to get me a vacation because that's kind of how things were should have gone. She goes, there's something different about you. What in the world happened? there's the thing that that's what the teacher said and yeah I did it usually I was arguing and pleading my case hand the paper and say that's a lie this time I handed it to her and I said that's true I did it and I told her about the girl that was sitting in class I don't know who that girl is to this day I wish I did I wish I did but she said Christian number of years and I can still hear her voice and they touched it wow you know what I can think of different times in my life when the Lord has done the same thing and when it comes time to confess he says pastor didn't hurt I challenge you. Temptation, it's not the same. Temptation is that preliminary battle that happens with the Lord. And what do we do? And when we do fall, our young people say, now, well, now it's getting old. So they're, they can be gone as eight and 25, 10 years ago. But they'd say, oh, Repentance is the most freeing thing in all the world. Just repeat it, God. Call us to move forward. And we reach around the corner and do something. Do something a little different tonight. I want to invite us to come. Get on our knees. Have an invitation.
skiing together with their heads bowed or eyes closed. Want to give us an opportunity. An opportunity to eat and an opportunity to drink.